If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar. Occasionally here on the podcast, we'll record an interview, and for reasons beyond our control, COVID-19, don't have an opportunity to release, at least not immediately. Such is the case with this interview, recorded in November 2020 and featuring one of our regular guests, pediatric orthopedic surgeon Dr. Alfred Atanda. At the time, Dr. Atanda was embarking on his journey as Nemours' Chief of Clinical Experience for the Delaware Valley, a role he still holds. And what a time it was to start a new role in addition to his clinical practice. COVID-19 was surging, again, and hope, which we'd seen precious little of to that point, was arriving in the form of vaccines to help prevent the spread of the virus. Vaccines approved for emergency use in adults last December by the FDA. With gratitude for his patience, and without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Atanda about his vision for, and approach to, his new role looking out for the physical and mental health of his fellow Nemours clinicians. I am now the Chief of Clinician Experience Officer in the Delaware Valley. That's basically for all independent practitioners, physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants, where I help ensure their wellness and their well-being ensure that they have the resources, emotional, physical, mental, financial, structural, organizational, in order to really optimize their fulfillment in their job, but of course, their performance and their potential as well. And we know about how important it is for people to be as on top of everything when it comes to working anywhere, especially at Nemours. Is there an extra concern with regard to clinicians that you feel either personally can tell me about or that you know about statistically? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Our organization has had a physician take his own life. So that really hit home for us as a group, Um, not just physicians, but all associates who worked with this individual. Physician suicide is not spoken about. There's not a lot of physician suicide awareness. But it is real. Probably between four and 500 physicians each year in this country commit suicide. Obviously, that's a very extreme form of stress and lack of wellness and well-being. But there's a whole spectrum. There's a lot of us walking amongst you every day that you see and interact with that are dealing with their own personal stresses and issues. COVID has not helped. As you know, everything for healthcare workers and even for non-healthcare workers, everything is different. Everything has changed. Most things that you try to do take longer or are less efficient just because of social distancing and spacing and maximum capacities. Healthcare is definitely no different. And that's placed a tremendous toll on obviously the physicians and the clinicians that are taking care of COVID patients for their own safety. Um, but even those of us that are bone surgeons, I'm still subjected to the same stressors that go along with bringing people in and out of the hospital. So yeah, long before coronavirus, there are many stressors, but given 
the coronavirus pandemic, given the racial tension that's going on in this country, none of that exists in the vacuum, as you can imagine. People are people, and we feel all of those things in our own personal lives, and you carry them with you at work. So it's been tough. Do you feel as though physicians um, either feel that stress more acutely because of what they do for a living? Yeah, I do. There's a sentiment in clinical healthcare where you just need to be tough. You need to kind of be bold. You need to be brave. You need to just kind of get through things no matter how tough they are, specifically in surgical fields and surgical subspecialties. You're taught not really to show emotion, not to show any signs of weakness, not to show anything (laughs) basically that makes you a human being. And you're meant to be able to weather any storm and be strong for your patients and for society. But as you know, that's not sustainable as a community of healthcare workers and clinicians and providers. It's impossible to not really be human and authentic and, and vulnerable and real, because I would argue is to that's actually where you get strength from, really leaning into the discomfort of your day-to-day lives and the stresses that we all feel and tackling them head-on as opposed to sweeping them under the rug and just pushing forward. This one physician who I mentioned took his life, I knew him very well. He wasn't an orthopedic surgeon, but he worked in an apartment that was in and around what we did, and we interacted with him quite frequently. And I think that that really hit home for a lot of people because we talk about burnout, we talk about physician wellness and resilience and all that sort of stuff. But it almost seemed like something that didn't apply to us. You know, it's just this kind of theoretical abstract topic. But once that happened, it really shook people hard because it makes you realize A, that we're all human, but B, we walked amongst this gentleman every day. And I never knew what he was going through. Maybe his family members and his close friends did, but maybe they even didn't. That's sometimes what really shocks people is because you were with someone so close in your inner circle and healthcare providers, we tend to really shelter a lot of our inner fears and anxieties for the greater good of our patients and our organization and just keep pushing forward. But unfortunately, every now and again, it doesn't last. You just can't maintain them. So we're hoping to provide resources and support, not just for this acute event, obviously, but just in general, because not everybody is at the point where they want to take their own lives, but a lot of people are still struggling and really finding it difficult just to get through the day and and continue to treat patients and provide high quality care. You're talking about mental health, which is something that we all struggle with to some degree Mm -hmm. or another. And mental health in general, there's a stigma against admitting that you might need help. Is stigma an issue that you deal with, particularly with the physicians? Yeah, totally. If I broke my ankle today and I go to work tomorrow, first of all, I'd be willing and open to share that with anybody. They'd probably see I'm wearing a cast and on crutches, but it's something that I would have no qualms talking about with people. And then be accepted. People would help me do my surgeries. They'd carry my stuff around. They'd move things around. But if I had an issue, let's say, with alcoholism or bipolar disorder or anxiety, or I was going through a rough divorce, I may not be so forthright with a lot of that stuff. And even if I was, 
it may not be received so well because it's not part of our culture. It may make people feel uncomfortable to the point where they tell me to keep it to myself sort of thing. Not necessarily out of spite or out of malice, but again, we spend a tremendous amount of time training. And most of that time, if not all of it, is devoted to patients and medical care. But very, very little of our training is devoted to how to take care of ourselves. And mental well-being does have some stigma, but I would go as far to say even just focusing on yourself, there's some little negative connotation that you may be being selfish. If you're talking about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to come in a little late today because I want to go to the gym, or I'm going to go home a little early because I want to go watch my kids play at school. Those kind of things, although are very real for people who want to take care of themselves or spend time with their kids, as a clinician, sometimes it's not really welcomed. The more, as I would say, is doing a fantastic job of trying to change that culture of healthcare. They put myself in this role for the clinicians, but we also have Maureen Leffler, or Mo Leffler is our chief wellness officer, who you may be familiar with, and she is in charge of the well-being of all the associates. I support her in her role from the clinician side, but she has an even bigger task for both North and South, the whole organization. So just the fact that the Moors appointed us, we actually have a third person who is my counterpart in Florida, Holly Antal, who's a psychologist. The way that Namor is appointed the three of us suggests that they're committed to doing something about the, the typical healthcare culture and really working towards making sure that the clinician well-being and wellness experience and associate well-being is always thought of. Obviously, patient-centered care puts patients first, but the people who take care of those patients have to be a very close second as well. If you really want to optimize the performance of a very large organization such as our own. So give me a little history of physician stress and burnout. Give me some of the vital statistics. Is it a higher rate of suicide amongst physicians as opposed to other careers? Is it a higher rate of alcoholism or drug use as opposed to other careers? The rate of physician suicide is definitely higher than similarly trained, similarly educated professionals. If you list all the occupations out there, I think physicians are in the top three to four amongst dentists and actually police officers that are also pretty high up there. I think in terms of burnout, what a lot of people used to think in like the 80s and 90s, if you look at the analogy of the canary in the coal mine, they would see that the canary passes out or asphyxiates or whatever, and they would blame it on the canary. So they would rather get a stronger one or one that's tougher or one that can hold its breath longer or whatever. And that was the shift in burnout resilience literature. We've shifted from that to now focusing on the environment because we know the clinicians are strong and they can study hard and they can sacrifice and they train for 20 years. I mean, we can get through a lot, but if you don't change the environment in which they have to practice their craft, you're going to have problems. And focusing on the individual level of wellness is important, but it's not the solution. So what Mo and Holly and I are trying to do is really focus on systemic level, organizational level interventions, resource support that can really trickle down and permeate throughout the entire organization. I think in terms of burnout, there's like professional and personal consequences. Professional, you think of 
There are more medical errors, medical mistakes, quality of patient care goes down, physician turnover goes up, which is very costly, specifically for a lot of the higher paid physicians. And patient satisfaction also goes down as burnout goes up. Personally, obviously, there's alcohol issues, substance abuse issues, relationship issues, suicide issues. So really devoting time and energy and resources to maintaining the wellness and well-being of the clinicians actually will save you a lot of money and time and patient care in the long run. I think in the previous 10, 15, 20 years, people would think that, well, coming up with well-being initiatives is expensive, right? As a physician, if I keep going to work and I keep seeing patients and I keep doing surgeries, then the hospital makes money. So just do everything humanly possible to keep doing that. But now we're realizing that, hey, maybe giving people a little bit of time off here and there or carving out some time in their schedule for break time, administrative time, time to catch up, even though that time doesn't necessarily directly equate to revenue generation, if I'm even 1% more optimized per year and 1% more well per year, that's going to trickle down into long-term effects and benefits for not only the organization, but obviously the patients that we serve. I would say the biggest environmental stressor is the implementation of the electronic medical record. It's been around for a while, and it was designed to improve efficiency and have a safe place to store protected health information and allow for easy ordering of medications and such. But as it's evolved, it's created a tremendous administrative and clerical burden for the clinicians in terms of you have to spend time interacting with the electronic medical record. You have to physically log in. You have to type notes. You have to dictate notes. You have to order things. And every second that you're spending interacting with the electronic medical record is a second that you're not spending with the patient. Sometimes people try to multitask and do both. They have the patient right in front of you while you're typing. But we know that that's a huge dissatisfier for patients. They want to feel that their clinician is listening to them and looking at them in the eye. Um, so what often what we do is we spend time with them and we listen to them and talk to them and then we do our documentation later. But guess what? If you have a full day of patients, that later becomes nighttime. <laughs> it becomes what we call pajama time, meaning you're spending time outside of your regularly scheduled day doing work for patients who aren't even there anymore. <laughs> and that documentation gets tied into billing and revenue generation. So if you don't do it, then the organization doesn't make money. That's probably single-handedly the biggest, biggest burden and challenge that the clinicians all over the country face because it's kind of a necessary evil, but it's something that detracts from what you're doing. Secondly, and a lot of people don't realize this, but I would say that the biggest systemic issue is communication. And a lot of large health systems and organizations, you have administrators, some of which are clinical, some of which are non-clinical. And they tend to represent the hospital, their senior leadership. They tend to make decisions. And then you have people like me who are the frontline staff, the physicians, the nurses, the techs, the associates. Those are the end users. And a lot of times there's not adequate communication between the people who make the decisions and people who are feeling the effects of those decisions. Oftentimes they're the clinicians. So I think historically that's been a huge chasm in the sense that the clinicians feel that they don't have a lot of autonomy. They don't feel like they have a lot of flexibility. There's not a lot of dynamics with their day-to-day -day workflow. It's kind of like a top-down approach. And I think that's rampant throughout healthcare and large academic organizations. 
But the thing that Namoris has been able to do that I'm very, very proud to be a part of is really putting people like myself in leadership positions, other clinical folks like Mo Leffler and Holly Antal, who are walking the walk and doing the frontline work. I'm only 20% for this job. 80% of my time, I'm still in the trenches. <laughs> I didn't hang up my scrubs and my white coat and, and go sit in a palace somewhere and, and just make decisions. I don't think Nemours really encourages that. Obviously, some of our more senior leaders are not in the trenches, but they always maintain direct ties to folks like myself who can really be kind of like a translator between senior leadership and the frontline staff. And Nemours has really made that a priority. I personally think it's all about communication and people really being able to speak their minds, people being able to give feedback, and then in turn, that feedback being absorbed and digested and acknowledged. And then we have a dialogue and then we try to do different things with that feedback. Many organizations don't have such a free flow of knowledge and communication the way Nemours does. And it's very exciting because I feel like for a long time, I was only able to provide value to my organization in one of two ways. That's doing surgeries and seeing patients. And I think specifically for a lot of physicians and other clinicians who are very forward thinking and are very innovative, they want to find a lot of different ways that you can provide value. I want to make my impact and leave my mark on this organization. I don't want to just be another orthopedic surgeon. I have a lot of good ideas. I have a lot of different outside of the box things that I like to explore. And Nemours, unlike a lot of other institutions, kind of fosters that and they take that. And I feel like they're moving in the right direction of meeting each clinician and each associate where they are. Obviously, this is an organization and a business and we have to do our jobs, but they do listen to folks like me who want to do telemedicine. They do f listen to folks like me who like doing wellness and well-being motivational speaking and different things like that, because it all provides value. And I think in healthcare in general, that's not the sentiment. You feel like you're like a mule climbing up a mountain and people are just strapping more and more boxes in your back and tell you to work harder and walk faster and do this and do that without actually trying to help you figure out how to get that stuff up that mountain easier, more efficiently. They just keep piling it on. And Nemours has kind of set itself apart from other larger organizations where we're now going on that journey where we're really trying to maximize the potential of each and every clinician and each and every associate and figure out how you can get the most out of people. And I think it starts by communication and meeting people where you're at. I'm a firm believer that, you know, if you're going to lead the people, you must walk amongst them. You really have to walk in their shoes and listen to their stories. Let me ask you this. How did you happen to be either offered this position or how did it come about that this position came to you? So I may have mentioned this to you in our last interview is I make YouTube videos. I started making YouTube videos for the residents and the trainees because I felt like medical education is so focused on how to become a doctor and become a surgeon and a physician, but it doesn't teach you about how to be a surgeon or a physician. So once you get to the pinnacle, how do you live your life as a surgeon every day? You have family, you have bills, you have kids, you have emotional and physical and mental issues and well-being and stressors, all these sorts of things you're not equipped to deal with. So I made a talk basically and made it a YouTube video for trainees about 
all the things that I wish I learned when I was training, but I didn't. And a lot of it at the end actually had to do with wellness and well-being, about how to take care of yourself and exercise right and reserve time for your family, but also make time for yourself. To, to answer your question, I don't know where they came up with that idea. I know they, they felt it was something important, but it just turns out that that was something that I was getting traction with. And I realized, well, I'm just doing this kind of ad hoc for random orthopedic residents and pediatric residents. Maybe I would have a huge impact and be able to provide that value to my organization if I did it in a way that's formal and operationalized and I have dedicated time to do it. And I thought that that would be a great way to align something that I love doing on the side with providing value back to my organization. That's something as clinicians Obviously, taking care of patients is first and foremost, but we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We all want to be working towards the betterment of the greater good, and we all want to be valuable to the organizations that pay us and reward us and compensate us. This position allows me to do that in a way that's not just seeing patients and not just doing procedures. That's what really resonated with me. I think it's very serendipitous that I was already kind of in that space. If I hadn't been doing those sorts of videos and talks when they posted that job, I don't I don't know if I would have applied for it. I never really thought of myself as a wellness or well-being professional, but it turns out I have a hidden talent. Well, I'm not so sure it was hidden. I think it was there all along. <laughs> it just manifested as a, an orthopedic surgeon to start. And now you're looking around at your family of associates, particularly your peers who are physicians and saying, okay, how can I help them to sustain this level or improve their level of quality and service mm -hmm. to the organization, to the kids? So how can that happen? What do you see happening a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, as a result of this position and you in this position? My first task is really been going on a learning tour. I think a lot of people, when they get in this kind of position, they want to come up with all these new initiatives and outside the box ideas and ways to really shake things up. But as you know, large healthcare organizations, they're not very nimble. It's more of like a ocean liner as opposed to a little speedboat. To turn one degree off course probably takes a year of meetings and talking. So really what I'm doing is really just learning what we already have and just figuring out all the resources that our organization has. I've met so many wonderful people and learn about so many different initiatives that are already ongoing, but have just been really siloed, one hand talking to the other. And a lot of people don't know of what's going on. I compare it to like cleaning out your attic. You know, you go up and you have all this stuff up there and you're like, oh, this sweater looks really nice. You know, maybe I can wear that. Look at all these old shoes, you know, and you're just like finding all this stuff that for whatever reason you didn't know was there, you didn't know it would be useful, it would be valuable. Obviously, that's a simple analogy, but I'm meeting so many people in so many different departments around the hospital. And I mean, non-clinical departments, groups like talent development, groups even like marketing and our social media groups, groups in our dictation department and our electronic medical record folks, people that have all these initiatives and ideas to help the clinicians, but they've never been able to really coalesce it in one place. And as I'm learning, I want to figure out ways that I can disseminate this knowledge appropriately to the physicians. The physicians and clinicians were bogged down with surveys and emails and all sorts of things. You have to figure out creative, crafty ways to get that information to the people that need it. And that's something that I've been thinking about. So long-term, my goal is, you know, we think about patient-centered care, but my goal is to really think about clinical 
clinician-focused career journey. Every one of us starts a job when we're young and spry, and then you know we retire in 30 years, 40 years, hopefully. And I want to create the optimum journey for each and every associate. It's not going to be one size fits all. It's not going to be generalized, blanketed stuff. Each and every one of us responds to our organization in a different way. Each and every one of us gathers and digests information that we're bombarded with in a different way. Some ways are a little bit more or less useful. I'm trying to really hold the hands of each and every clinical associate as they go along all the bumps and bruises and ups and downs of being a clinical person and interjecting myself in ways that can provide support at each one of those crossroads and help pick them up when they stumble but also when they don't stumble, right? When you take care of patients, it's not always about just seeing the doctor when you're sick. Sometimes you go to well health, well visits and well checkups and you get text alerts telling you to remember to take your blood pressure and remember to do this. I want to really reimagine how clinicians experience their jobs. And I'm such a techie guy and into telemedicine and all this nerdy stuff. I really want to use technology to help navigate people in an automated way such that we don't wait until they're having a lot of problems and stressors and even similar to our colleague that I told you about. We don't want to wait till it gets to that point. When people kind of feel okay and optimized, we still want to touch them and interact with them and provide useful information and help them along the way in ways that they may not even have noticed that they need help. So really overhauling how we interact with our providers is my job. Because right now it's like, we make sure you do your job. We make sure you're productive. And if there's issues or problems, then we can kind of figure out how to get you to where you need to be. But I really want to touch people before they even realize that they have a problem to keep them on the up and up and keep them along that track. And that's a big task. That's <laughs> that's not a six-month, 12-month project. But that's my long-term goal is to really shepherd and navigate the clinicians of our organization through their journey as they're the ones navigating patients through their journey simultaneously. Dr. Alfred Atanda is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and serves as Nemours' Chief of Clinical Experience for the Delaware Valley. Dr. Atanda is one of many Nemours associates who have shared their Nemours experience for others to hear as part of the Champions for Children podcast. Your turn awaits send us an email at podcast at nemours.org. That's podcast at nemours.org. As we close out the month of June next week, we'll be recognizing Pride Month and hear from members of the Nemours LGBTQ Associate Resource Group about equity and inclusion for our LGBTQ patients, families, and associates. Please join us. The Champions for Children podcast is available on Nemoorsnet and the Nemours Now app, as well as your favorite podcast app and your smart speaker. As always, many thanks to our production team, Peter Adebi, Deborah Griffin, and Savannah Pettit. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turners Falls, Massachusetts. On behalf of Dr. Alfred Atanda, I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for joining us on the Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children we serve.